0: Welcome
1: to the South Asian Studies at Stanford podcast, also known as the SAS Pod. I am Lalita Duperan, Associate Director in the Center for South Asia all our podcasts and information about the center are available at southasia.stanford.edu Today, I am delighted to welcome to the SASBAD Ziba Huck, lecturer at the Stanford Law School and clinical supervising attorney with Stanford Law School's Religious Liberty Clinic. Ziba, I know you have a zillion things to do, so thank you for making time for us today. How are you?
2: I'm good, it's so wonderful to be here.
1: Well, thank you. Uh, let's start off by learning more about one of your responsibilities at Stanford. What is the Religious Liberty Clinic, and what's your role there?
2: Yeah. So first, maybe I should tell you a little bit about clinical legal education, which perfect, is, <laughs> which most people are very confused when I share what my work um, because they don't they don't think of law schools as housing this kind of a, an endeavor. But it's basically an experiential um, program in which. Law students, students that are engaged in the three year program, um, um, you know, they graduate with a JD or a Juris Doctor degree. They um, spend at Stanford, it's a full quarter, immersed full time in a practical law firm or um, legal services experience. Um, but this experience is an external, it's not an externship, internship, whatever you want to call it at an organization. It is actually the clinic. As a whole, we have, you know, the Religious Liberty Clinic is under the umbrella of something called the Mills Legal Clinic, and so it's our own law firm where we also have teachers. So we are employed by Stanford Law School, we are teaching our students, um, you know, we have seminars and um, other sessions, but then we also are working with them and teaching them through the practice of law. So that's clinical education generally, okay. and um, my specific area is um, in the area of religious freedom, um, and specifically, I work on mostly um, cases in court, litigation, but also advocacy efforts surrounding, uh, you know, religious discrimination, um, needs for religious accommodation of faith practices, um, and uh, yeah, I think that's probably
1: the shortest way I can describe it tell us um more about the clinic so um do who who are you practicing on are they actual clients are they kind of fake clients how does that work
2: yeah we have real clients and our clients come to us from all different directions we have sometimes we have you know other organizations that that send um Uh, cases to us um, or people find us on the internet and call us up but um, we have real clients and these are clients who are facing some sort of an issue related to their identity um, their faith identity or their faith practice and we represent you know um, any type of faith or no faith at all so you know you can say from Adventists to Zoroastrians we've represented Rastafarians and Muslims and Jews and Um, Jehovah's Witnesses and just really it runs the gamut. Um, I have a Wiccan client right now um, and so they really you know we really are supporting and advocating for the practice of religion um, you know in in situations where people face barriers and so the the areas in which those generally are are one prison Um, so people who are imprisoned and who um obviously have limits on their liberty generally, Mm
1: -hmm. but
2: um, you know, the government is still required, you know, the first amendment doesn't end at the prison doors. And so those, you know, those facilities Mm -hmm. still require, um, are required to provide some level of uh, ability to practice their faith. So, you know, we're, we're, we we do a lot of work with prisoners. Um, We also represent a number of people in an employment uh, dispute context. So people Mm -hmm. who are, you know, it can be a dress or grooming issue that their faith requires them to um, dress a certain way or have facial hair or something along those lines and you know their workplace doesn't allow it or um like a day off or time off right for religious observance like a sabbath or friday prayers or something along those lines and then the third area i think where there's a lot of work is also in the land use um side -hmm. and that's usually the clients are more organizational um And they're often like a house of worship, um, or, or another, you know, or a school that's faith based that's having issues with zoning. Um, And there are actually particular, um, you know, there's a federal statute that that really protects religious organizations and and, um, structures really in, in the land use context because zoning can be, if you even know, you know, where we live, there's a lot of sort of parochialism and there's a lot of protectionism and you know, lots of cities don't want uh, a religious entity that's gonna bring traffic and noise and um, and maybe not really pay taxes because they're tax exempt, you know? Um, right, and so, right. you know, there are laws that really protect that. And so we we do a lot of work in that area too.
1: Your students, the students that um, I know they're not interning, but I'm gonna call it interning just for the sake of, um, of kind of painting the picture. Um, who quote unquote intern uh, in the religious liberties clinic are, do they choose to be there? Or are they assigned?
2: Yeah, we have kind of like a match program, which is akin okay. to what you see in like medical schools, right. When they match for residency. So it's, it's like you do apply, but then we also, it's quite complicated and we review applications and we rank and they rank. And then there's a system that puts us together.
1: Got it got it okay thank you for explaining more about the religious liberty religious liberty clinic at Stanford Um, tell us a little bit more just about you and how you became inspired to study law
2: sure well I you know I think I talk about this a lot because I don't know that my identity has a lot with my desire to be a lawyer and that's true for a lot of people I'd say Um, Uh, people that I come across, whether, you know, in my career or students at Stanford. And for me, you know, I am a Muslim woman uh, who was born and raised in the Midwest. I grew up in St. Louis, Missouri. Mm -hmm. And my, you know, being sort of Muslim in America is a very interesting experience. Um, And I I would say that it's also, you know, has really been complicated by, I think, the experience of 9-11 and sort of the post 9-11 world in which we continue to live in. Mm -hmm. Um, And, you know, it's both a a place which is home to me, but as in particular, a visible Muslim woman, someone who wears a headscarf, um, you know, where I really do wear my religion on my sleeve or rather my head. Yeah, It's a very complicated experience. And that identity means that I feel very American. I am American, but I'm not perceived as such by many people. Mm -hmm. And there's a, a constant kind of, you know, experience of, um, of uh, whether it's proving or just reminding or, you know, stating that I am American. Uh, I was just leading a seminar yesterday that was really focused on diversity, equity, and inclusion. And we were talking about issues of identity and microaggressions in particular. And, you know, it could be, someone said, well, you know, I'm from the South and in the South, it's, um, you know, that's called being polite. And, And I had to say, you know what, it's, it's actually a different thing a little bit because you can be very polite, but still, you know, microaggressive on someone. And for me, that's the, that's sort of the experience that I've had, you know, throughout my life is when people just cannot understand that I am American, that I say that I'm American, Mm. they're sort of like, wait, but where did you come from? Mm. You know, or or, oh, so you came to this country to do that. And I've had this experience so many times and they're quite polite and, you know, and I want to give them grace as well. I think that's important, but it's a, it's a common refrain that there's a little bit of cognitive dissonance that when they see someone who looks like me, that they understand that that's, you know, that someone like me can be an American. But I think, you know, so that's a little bit about my identity, but, but how that translates into law. Well, I Mm -hmm. think that The Muslim community as a minority faith, as in particular being sort of viewed as as a whole, as as terrorists after Mm -hmm. 9-11, you know, there are so many injustices on that community. And there's, you know, this sort of stereotyping there were government policies that really focused on people um, who are Muslim and who looked like Muslims quite frankly. Um, and, you know, I just really saw so many problems in my community, so much discrimination that I felt that this is something that I want to fix in some way. And to me, the law and engaging in legal work seemed like the way to do it.
1: So I want to push you a little on that. Um, I grew up in a family of legal people. And um so I grew up with this kind of um, faith in the law, and that the law was bigger than the person. And and recently I was talking to my brother, who's a judge, about Amy Coney Barrett, and I was saying I had some you know concerns when she, you know during her hearings about her personal beliefs, and 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 he said you know she is somebody who believes in the law. You have to have faith that that will ultimately win out, and. I don't know that I have that. How do you negotiate that? I mean, is the law really the place? And do you feel that it is as honest as it should be?
2: Yeah, I I do think that as lawyers, we're kind of trained to really believe in these institutions in the court and in the legal system and in the law, you know, as somehow upholding justice. I think my experience as a lawyer, as a Muslim woman who's a lawyer, as a South Asian woman who's a lawyer, is is to challenge that? I don't necessarily, I don't believe that our institutions are always going to further justice or mm-hmm. that they're objective or neutral. I, I challenge that premise hundred um, percent. However, I do think that these institutions are essential, but perhaps it it requires, you know some disruption and it requires advocacy, you know, to move that ball, right? And to kind of press for change or press for kind of movement t- towards social justice. And and I think, you know, I mean, mm-hmm. what you mentioned about, you know, Justice Barrett, I think any judge comes to the table with their identity and their values and their background. And it, it is sort of this fiction that somehow you you become a judge and you're all of a sudden neutral. Like, um, right I think Chief Justice John Roberts and his... Um, in his congressional hearing said something along the lines as, Oh, well, my view of judging is that I'm an umpire. I just call balls and strikes. Mm-hmm. And, and I think, you know, studying him over time, I think that he, I think he sincerely believes that about himself, perhaps. And I think a yeah. lot of judges may, but you know, I, I don't, I don't believe that I think that judges have an immense amount of power and um, you know, historically we've had judges who are very privileged um, racially socioeconomically on a whole bunch of, you know, sort of factors, and, and they have upheld a system in which that privilege is then upheld. And I do think, though, and that's actually why I think it's important, I thought it was important for someone like me, and other people like me, or just other people who are different, diverse than what is the majority and the norm, to enter the legal field and kind of push that envelope. Because in the absence of that, then we do have this sort of up You know this system that just upholds um, the, you know, whatever is the norm and that privilege and you know structures that that are problematic. But I, you know, I recognize maybe it's maybe it's folly to think that people can change these deeply entrenched um, and flawed institutions. But um, we sure can try.
1: I commend you for it Um, and uh, so I'm also curious how the First Amendment then plays into that as uh, I find um, the First Amendment uh, really kind of difficult to get my head around because it is about religious freedom which is what your work is about but it's also about free speech or that is how it works out and those two seem to me often completely opposed to each other. So how does that play out in your Work and I'm getting a a lovely little just to tell my audience I'm getting a lovely little smirky (laughs) here we go kind of look.
2: (laughs) Well, I think when people hear First Amendment, you usually think of speech, right? You think this is my First Amendment right to say what I want, Um, and you know that that's absolutely true. The First Amendment actually um, embodies the freedom of religion, uh, freedom of speech, freedom of assembly, freedom to petition government. um, You know, which I I would say the latter. Three, so the first, the first freedom in the First Amendment is actually freedom of religion. Mm-hmm. Congress shall make no law establishing religion, nor prohibiting the free exercise thereof. And that's um, that's the first thing the First Amendment says. It's focused on religion. And then it goes on to talk about speech and assembly. Mm-hmm. And I think that in some ways, it's. I think you can probably think about the First Amendment as a freedom of conscience really, right, it's sort of embodying that Mm. principle, and, you know, that there's this idea that, you know, we should be able to say what we think without fear of retribution, but we should also be able to be free to practice, and to believe, you know, um, as people of faith, uh, without, uh, you know, facing, you know, in, you know, I mean, think about where we're coming from in England, right, you know, this idea of having an established church, right, that's where this non establishment principle comes from. This idea that if you are of a faith that's not the majority that you have that right to exercise and that's embodied in, you know, this Bill of Rights to our Constitution, our fundamental founding document of our governmental system so um. So I, I think, you know, I mean, are there things in tension, maybe sometimes with speech and religion? Sure. I mean, even the First Amendment itself, there's, there's two principles. There's an, non, non or a disestablishment principle, right, that the government shouldn't, like, at, at, at the very least, I think it would be interpreted, shouldn't have a church, but, sh- you know, shouldn't sort of incorporate faith into a governmental, in the institution of government. And then you have a free exercise principle, which is saying, well, government shouldn't limit it free exercise limit free exercise. And sometimes these two principles actually go head to head. Right. Um, You know, for instance, there's a recent Supreme Court case about, um, it was actually Vermont, which doesn't have, um, in some rural areas, doesn't have um, public high schools. And so the government, you know, obviously public um, education is a right, um, you know, and and it's something that our governments provide. So they will provide stipends for students to go uh, at, uh, go to private high schools. Mm-hmm. um but they limit it and say but no no private high school that is religiously affiliated right yeah. and that's sort of the reason they're doing is saying hey this is that that would be an establishment clause problem wouldn't we be too close you know wouldn't we be kind of like you know paying for a religious education we shouldn't be doing that as the government but then you have people who challenge it from a free exercise perspective saying hey you know i i'm 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 a person of faith, I'm sending my children to these faith, faith faith-based high school, because there's no public high school, by the way. And I'm not, you're not, you're not going to give me that stipend. Well, then aren't you discriminating against me on the basis of faith here? So, you know, there are these problems that are, that are complicated and thorny. And, um, you know, I think intellectually, they're very difficult. And then legally, there's, it's the religious liberty doctrine has taken a lot of twists and turns and so it's um, it's it's just a really interesting issue. I mean if we go back to like the 70s there were a lot of cases around school funding that were under the establishment clause that were challenges like oh like you know you're you're giving this government is giving money to the public schools for this you know after school program um, that uh, you know that is religiously affiliated that's a problem we can't do that. an establishment clause violation let's shut that down and now Mm -hmm. we've seen a rise in a lot of litigation around wait a second the government isn't giving money to the religious groups but they're giving money to everyone else for the exact same thing and so you know and, and and there's so there's a tension there and i don't have the right answer i don't think it's i don't think the answer is always that the government shouldn't you know support religious entities i don't think the answer is always that the government has to support religious entities but there, there's a gray space here where these questions are, you know, tr- you know, trying to be solved.
1: You already alluded to 9-11. Um, and I have uh, from the notes that I have from when we spoke before, uh, 9-11 comes up a lot. And I've said this before on the SASPOD, pod, but uh, it struck me a couple of years ago that uh, the students we now have incoming to our universities do not know anything other than this post 9-11 world. And uh, A, I wanna ask you if you think there'll ever be a post post 9-11 world, or are we just gonna be in the post 9-11 world forever? Uh, and then um, also the question of of how, say more about how that has shaped your life and your your work.
2: Well, for, in response to the first question, you know, who who knows what kind of right. world? I mean, right now we're living in a pandemic world, right? Um, right? But I mean, if you think about it, you know, back in, in you know, there was the period where, our, you know, our, you know, uh, politics and international relations were so dominated by you know um the the struggle with communism right like that the communist was the enemy right and then yeah. and then obviously we have a post 9/11 where you know we've seen you know that the enemy is are, are these terrorist groups that are largely you know um affi- you know espouse an affiliation with islam and so you know i, I would like you know i mean I, I hope that we're not kind of always in this in this you know um era that things shift and things change and people understand that not everything is black and white and shades of gray. And, you know, but, but I just think realistically, eventually there will probably be another enemy that maybe right, takes that's over, what we need. you know, <laughs> um, but I, I think, you know, at base, I mean, I, I think for a lot of Muslims, Americans at 9-11, we felt like the victim on multiple levels, because we mm-hmm. felt just like everyone else, that we are Americans and are countries being attacked and we feel afraid and scared, but then we were also looked at by our fellow Americans as the perpetrators in a way, or sympathetic with the perpetrators. And so we were in this spot where we felt, I think, just really alone and, um, you know, victimized twice almost, right? Um, There was so much suspicion. And I think, you know, our, our government Um, spent a lot of time surveilling our communities and Mm -hmm. on the surface, you know, trying to build trust and state, you know, that we're partners, but then behind the scenes sending in um, informants into the communities, you know, and creating sort of, uh, you know, I mean, almost, you know, drumming up sort of some people who are critical of the government and then drumming up support for, you know, extremism and, and then nailing them for, you know, kind of, I mean, it, 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 unfortunately, the legal doctrine of entrapment is very difficult to prove, but really, you know, anyone looking at these situations would say there's a lot of entrapment going on here. Mm-hmm. And it's really, you know, it just created a lot of distrust and it really created a lot of fear in Muslim communities, um, for sure. you know, and, and, and a reluctance to, um, go to their mosques and to engage in the community. And, you know, and I think, uh, I'm not sure that there's been a full grappling, but like, how does that connect to the First Amendment, right? You know, and I think, you know, I mean, what is this about if we're creating a culture of fear and surveillance, how does a Muslim community even practice its faith and, you know, identify as Muslim in that context? It's, Mm -hmm. It's very difficult. And I think we saw the rise of you know, Donald Trump, who could openly say things about, you know, saying things like Islam hates us. And, you know, let's shut down the entrance of Muslims into this country, which, you know, obviously happened in the form of the travel ban in in some form. Um, And it wasn't, it's not that it wasn't totally controversial. There was a, a lot of, you know, segments of our country who you know, sort of rose up against that and challenged that. And a lot of partnerships were made. And, you know, I think, I think that's really great, but there was also a really, you know, there's wide swaths of our country who were very much in support of that mm-hmm. and, you know, or ambivalent about it, you know? Um, And I think, I think that's, that's just been something that as a matter of identity is challenging. I mean, I have young children and when I I was, my daughter, my eldest daughter, who's now 10, was four during, I think, the Trump campaign, I think, mm-hmm. around. And she was in preschool, and she came home one day, and she said, Mama, Donald Trump is going to kick us out. And, and she didn't even understand the concept of country. She said something about, like, where do we have to go, outer space? You know, <laughs> I mean, it was so, but it was so, like, heartbreaking to me that, you know, she was, at, at such a young age was sort of like, oh, he says, like, Muslims need to leave, you know, where are we going to go? Wow. And, and I think that that, the feeling that our community had with, through that campaign, and even just through that presidency was a feeling of, you know, just, you know, being, it was, it's hard to feel like an American, you know, it was hard to feel like you belonged here when you, mm. when you have, you know, the highest office, you know, of our, of, of our government saying these things and, and and really kind of exuding this, what felt like a hatred for your community and your faith. Right. Um, it was very diffu- difficult. Um, and so I think that that, that is also, I mean, that's sort of a, you know, part of the post 9-11 arc where, you know, I, I think there were a lot of efforts initially, at least, um, you know to say, well, you know we're not fighting against Islam and you know President Bush, regardless of what happened and, and there were atrocities that happened in places like Afghanistan and Iraq and and oh gosh, you know the the war in Iraq and and sort of all of the the lies that, that took us there mm-hmm. but but I think um, you know even even domestically there was at least a concern about well you know, Muslim Americans, you are, you are welcome here, you know, at least lip service to that. And I think we've moved to a place where, you know, we elected a leader, our country collectively elected a leader who didn't even feel the need to do that, and could openly, um, and really without, you know, any limiting principle, say that he thought that, yeah, I mean, these, you know, these are, you know, we should we should remove islam and muslims from our country because that's basically the message that he was that he was sending
1: yeah it felt in the in the trump years there were so many things that he got away with because they weren't really enshrined as you can't do this but there was this idea that you know nobody had ever done it and surely you know decent people wouldn't and and i think in some ways i i don't think if I, I don't think I can say that I enjoyed, but I appreciated it in some way that he really showed up, how how the system is built on the idea that a certain class of people will behave in a certain way that's considered by society to be decent or even quote unquote, civilized. And he was like, no, it turns out I can get away with it. So I'm gonna get away with it and, and um I don't know that, I think at the time, everybody was talking about, okay, we have to rewrite all these agreements and we now have to enshrine in law that actually presidents can't do what you were just describing, but I'm not sure if that's happening.
2: I think, I think there have been a lot of conversations around you know, executive power because, right. I mean, you're, you're right. I mean, if you think in, a, in, in legal terms, a sort of constitution has certain constraints, but, but a lot of these things are sort of norms You know, about like, how does someone who's elected to the highest office act and what do they say? And, and he just shattered all of those, you know, um, and there's something to be said about, well, you know, I I don't know, I, I can't say that there have been real, um, efforts and I, this is not my area, you know, to try to, you know, really legislate and change the fact that you have that freedom. Um, in some ways, I think there's the the other side of the argument that, well, if you're leading a country, you need some leeway to be able to do, I don't know, you know, some of the things that maybe he did, but it's, it it is a little mind boggling. And he was certainly outside of the mold and, uh, it, it is a little scary. I think even to, to think of what's the, like, how far can that go, you know, um, and I do think I mean, I think that this is something to say about legal institutions, though, because I do think that, you know, the courts were a check to Donald Trump, even if they didn't always, you know, stop him from doing certain things or um, whatnot. But, you know, the, the courts and other institutions, um, agencies in the executive branch, lawyers, even in his own White House counsel office, I think, you know, even with him challenging the election results, there was a point at which I think it's come out recently that, you know, every single lawyer that was supporting him in White House counsel, something would resign if he pushed it further, you know. And so so that's something to be said, right, about the law and these legal institutions, which ultimately did hold him back um, and pretend and 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 uphold some of these norms that are really important for for a a thriving democracy.
1: Yeah, yeah, totally. And uh, that but that was quite impressive in some ways that it, it did. The legal system did seem to work in, in many ways that I wasn't expecting, but I, I guess I'm jaded at this point. Um, we are the South Asian Studies at Stanford podcast. And so I want to ask you if that's okay with you about your identity as a South Asian American or however you identify
2: you know, I do identify myself as someone who is of South Asian descent. I usually describe myself as South Asian because I, my parents are immigrants to this country. They mm-hmm. um, came almost 50 years ago from India, um, from South India. Um, Chennai is where, mm-hmm. largely where they grew up. Um, and my family as Muslims were sort of minorities within India and in particular within Southern India yeah. as well. Um, and so, you know, I mean the, my family, my roots are certainly in India, um, but the but I found that being an American, um, and being in America, and being someone whose parents are from India but is also Muslim, that that identity is a little more complicated than you know. When I say that I'm Indian, it doesn't fully reflect my experience because I grew up in a community in St. Louis where. Um, ultimately we were very entrenched into the Muslim community and the Muslim South Asian community. I mean, there were Indians and there were Bengalis and there were Pakistanis, but the, the largest contingent was Pakistani and, you know, my family is Urdu speaking. And so that was a very natural place for us to live. And, um, and that's really, you know. So I, I was always surrounded by so much uh, Pakistani culture. Yeah. Um, I mean, I wore Pakistani shalwar kameezes when we would go to parties on the weekends, or to the, to the mosque, or, um, you know. Uh, I I would, even though, again, like, um, you know, my parents weren't Pakistani, but on Pakistan day, guess what? All my friends were singing the Pakistani national anthem. So there I was, and I can sing the whole Pakistani <laughs> national anthem, but Indian national anthem, you got me, you know? So, I mean, I think there were so many aspects of my identity, and this is kind of where, like, there's culture and there's national identity, and then there's religion and how they all kind of come together mm-hmm. that, you know... Um, you know, my, my family is very much Indian. Our roots are in India. Um, but uh, because, you know, we're Muslim, and, and we're living in this third country outside mm. of South Asia, we're very much sort of mixed in. And I yeah. think the South Asian moniker just works better for that. I also right. I married a Pakistani. I married a man who grew up in Pakistan and his family is still in Pakistan. So mm-hmm. as an adult as well, I am very connected to Pakistan in a way that I am not to India. Most of my family has either passed away or also immigrated to the United States. And so for right. me, I'm just, I'm very connected to Pakistan, but I'm not a Pakistani, I don't, I don't see, that's not who, I don't see myself as a Pakistani, Mm -hmm. um, but I am connected to that country, and so I have these connections, you know, to the subcontinent, um, and I think South Asia, South Asian is the way that I usually describe myself.
1: That's actually very lovely, because, um, I've often heard people say this is a complete kind of state department fabrication this idea of south asia and and the way the federal funding goes and the centers are created and uh, that that is no doubt also true but it's it's good to hear that there's a certain liberation in the terminology for people from south asia as well so I appreciate that and so um, how does that inform your work or 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 does it you
2: know I don't I don't think that it um... Well I think I think that my background you know being having a background of family from India, right? I mean, my mom's best friend from dental school is Hindu and she's such a wonderful woman. And she's, you know, has, has had a big part in my childhood or, you know, we have, I I sort of grew up watching Bollywood and whether for better or for worse, you know, there's certain cultural and religious things that I saw of different communities, maybe that were different than my own. Um, So I think that, I think being from South Asia, you know, and having that experience, there's there's some familiarity with faith traditions outside of my own. Um, you know, there's some cultural familiarity. Um, you know, of different faith groups, but I, I I I do think that it informs my work in that it's just a an integral part of my identity, right? And so, you know, it it means that I'm a woman of color. It means that I am the children of immigrants. It means that you know, in some ways, I'm I'm a very privileged minority because you know. Uh, people who immigrate from India and, and Pakistan, especially when my parents did, were kind of seen as, well, they were very educated and, you know, right. it was a lot of privilege that came along with that. And so, I mean, there's just so many parts of my identity that I think, um, you know, it it, it it definitely informs my work. I think in terms of, um, you know, as a Muslim in particular, I think and a Muslim South Asian, I think it, um, you know, there's something about the minority dynamics of my faith. The fact that in, in India my family was a minority. In America, my family is a minority as a mm. faith group. Um, you know, also really has is part of why I want to be a lawyer who supports um, marginalized communities, right? Mm-hmm. And minority communities, because that that's been not just my story, but my family's story. Yeah. And I think it, you know, as someone with a background in, you know and and roots in India, i mean even just seeing the way that you know the the trends in india today right mm-hmm. with the with the stress around you know hindutva and all of that it's it's sort of um it, it it it's it just cannot be divorced from who i am and how i practice law and what i do and why i care about it
1: Yeah, I was going to ask you about that. Thank you for bringing that in about, uh, even though you said that you don't have um, many family connections or family ties right now in India, what it feels like to look at what's happening in India and, uh, and knowing what that means for people there.
2: Yeah, I feel I feel very sad, because, um, you know, I, 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 I visited India as a child with my family. And, you know, there is a diversity in India and there has been, you know, at least that is, is really rich, you know, I mean, culturally, linguistically, Mm -hmm. religiously, Mm -hmm. you know, I mean, and I tell, I actually tell this to people who are Pakistani or, are, you know, whether they live here or in Pakistan. That it's a very different feel when you go to Pakistan because you live in this majority Muslim country, and minority faith groups are different. You know, you have ethnic, some ethnic and linguistic variety, but it's faith-wise, it's very Muslim. You know, it, Islam is the dominant faith, right? right? But when you go to India, there's a diversity that's beautiful. Uh, you know that that you have. Um, Muslims and Hindus and Sikhs and Christians and Jains and, you know, their neighbors and their friends in school. And they're, um, you know, just, you know, it's just a different feel because you have a diversity there. it's yeah. beautiful. And I think what, you know, I'm not an expert in South Asia, and it's not where my work is centered. And so I don't know quite that much about it. But what I do see is that it, that diversity is being challenged and it's, yeah. and, and it mirrors what's happening in the United States too, right? I mean, I think our country is a very diverse one, but there's certainly, you know, the rise of these authoritarian figures, um, who are challenging that diversity and want to, um, you know, create a narrative almost of what the country is that's homogeneous. Um, and yeah. you know, that's happening in India. And I think that's very sad because there's such a richness
1: Yeah, that, that you miss out on. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, um, we're out of time, but I just love listening to your talk. I, uh, your, your background is fascinating to me. uh, And you're so very generous with your time, but also with your energy. I mean, you clearly care so much about what you do and uh, what you can do for other people. So, um, Thank me, you.
2: It's it's always such a pleasure to talk to you. I enjoy it. I feel like we could talk forever. I mean, you know, it's it's just, I, you know, I it's so much fun. And your work at the Center for South Asian Studies is amazing. Um, I've been following it
1: closely, and it's just so wonderful. Thank you. That is so very kind. Back to my point of you being so very kind and generous. So um, we will talk forever, but not on the sass pod. So thank you for uh, being a guest on the podcast today. Uh, I'd like to thank Soham Shiva for creating the beautiful intro and outro music that we keep still getting compliments on, and also to Simrat Mataru for her fabulous (laughs) post-production. Thank you for listening to the SASPOD, the South Asian Studies at Stanford podcast. Find out all about the Stanford Center for South Asia at southasia.stanford.edu and find us on social media. We are on Facebook, Twitter and Instagram. Thank you for joining us and I hope you can tune in again soon
0: the <expressions> <upright> koi <jas>